Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera. Once again, coming to you from the closet. I'm safely sheltering in place. And I have to say, being in this closet is a welcome change from the kitchen and the living room and the bedroom, which are all starting to feel a little bit familiar. But I am grateful that I can still bring you this show and technology allows me to send this file over to our sound man, Nate. And it's pretty great that even in this crazy new situation we're in that we can still communicate. So I'm grateful for that. And before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to read a few emails to you all. Last week, I asked how all of you were coping with this stay-at-home situation and how it was affecting your creative minds. For me, this has been a tough time because the show was already in limbo when the coronavirus made its way to the U.S. And so our grand plans to find a new network for the show and keep the television thing going are for now in a bit of a holding pattern. And as you know, I've been sharing some of my favorite episodes with you all while we make it through this time. So like the rest of you, I have some pretty serious hours to fill, and that could be daunting. Luckily, having kids helps because one of them is usually hungry, so I spend a lot of time in the kitchen. And I've also become pretty adept at multitasking housework, mixing, doing loads of laundry with mopping the bathroom floors and such. But man cannot live on housework and cooking alone. And so I've been trying to sit down and squeeze my brain in various ways. I've been doing more drawing, more writing, more reading. And what I find is, no matter how bleak things feel, if I force myself to sit at a desk and pick up a pencil, I end up in a better place. Creativity has always been my way through a problem. And it's important to remember in these times that creative-minded people, the makers, the doers, the craftsmen, the artists, we have an advantage because we can invent a different world than the one we currently find ourselves in. I know that some of you feel like your creativity can be a curse at times, leading to an unstable life and too much unstructured time. But when you're feeling this way, and we all do, remember that you have a secret weapon that the bankers, the bean counters, and the lawyers don't have. You have an engine inside of you that can transport you to another place and another time. That's a powerful thing. And I choose to believe that this unscheduled shutdown of our world is an opportunity to reconnect with the kid inside us that loves to make things. Because when you think about it, every show you're watching on Netflix, every record you listen to on Spotify or on your pristine vinyl system, every book on your shelf you have read, those things started as a spark of an idea by a creative person just like you, sitting in a room, alone, squeezing their brain. Let me read a few emails from listeners who were kind enough to write in and tell me about their experiences during the coronavirus. This is from Alec, who says, I'm still doing that acting thing, and I was actually on my way out to California with my girlfriend. Unfortunately, the virus kept that from happening, but maybe that is a blessing in disguise. This quarantine has given me time to work on music, write, and even take some extra online courses. Because why not? Quarantine has not been all that kind of the film work out there. All the sets I was scheduled for are now shut down, but I still have my delivery job to fill that gap. Then he says, don't worry, I've been sanitary about my deliveries, and I wash my hands in between every delivery. Well, that's good, Alec. Thank you again, and please keep doing what you do. Okay, this one's from Seth. I'm a filmmaker and actor, and this isolation has been sobering, and in many ways needed for myself. I don't take the time to stop enough and appreciate the present moment, and I find myself falling into a workaholic pattern quite often. As you know, we're facing an extremely difficult time in the creative field, but I've honestly pushed myself not to feel sorry for myself and just start creating more and writing more. And I've also found that a daily meditation has been my saving grace, and video calling my friends and family has been something that has helped me a ton. Seth, I feel the same way as you. And uh, that's a great way to put it because you have to mix up your time. You can't sit in a room by yourself all the time and expect to be creative. You have to reach out to family and friends. And so thank you for that letter. Uh, this one's from Richard. He says, hi, Sam. As you see from this email address, I do stand up comedy. I've been doing it since July 18th, 2015, and I'm 26. I used to get grumpy and really hard to be around after three weeks of not performing. Well, tomorrow, Monday, will be four weeks, and I haven't had that. A lot of comedians are trying to cope through internet stuff. I understand skits and sketches, but stand-up isn't something that can work online. And people are trying with virtual mics. But for me, stand-up is not just about making me laugh. I need the audience. I need that live atmosphere. I tried a virtual set, and it didn't feel like stand-up. Well, that's a tough place to be, and I hope you can find a balance and 
a way to deal with your comedy or maybe this is the time where you sit down and you just write a ton of new material about these very insecurities and grumpy feelings that you're facing uh, but thanks for sharing let me read one more here hey Sam I'm an actor and writer in Chicago I just graduated from college last May which gives an added layer to the situation we're all in first year in the real world well here's an unprecedented worldwide pandemic I went to college for comedy and have spent the past five-ish years in the comedy community in Chicago. I grew up as a theater actor, though, and I am working my way back into that world more. For me, being in such a ripe time of a creative transition during this period has been interesting. I've been dealing with a lot of internal struggles of, do I want to write or do I want to only act, and all the shades in between those two ideas. During this time of forced distancing, I have been able to actually relax without any of the stress of go, 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 that I feel most of the time as a creative graduate. I'm getting to know myself and love myself more, which is essential for me creatively. I let myself work when I know I want to work. So often, during regular life, I've had to work as a creative when I don't feel it. But isn't that why we got into this in the first place? Because we felt something and it pushed something creative out of us? Too often I've forced creativity out of my ass because I feel like I have to be going at the same pace as everybody. Now is the time I get to find my pace. Thanks for asking about how creatives are helping themselves get through this. Right now it's creatives that are keeping the world sane, really. Good to know there's someone out there making sure the creatives are keeping themselves sane in their own way, too. And he signs off with, wash your hands, Chris. Well, Chris, that's good advice. We all need to wash our hands and stay home and ride this thing out. And for me, I am grateful for all the letters and all the feedback because we're all going through this together, even if we're isolated. And it helps to hear how other creative people are solving their own problems. And with that, let me introduce this week's guest. It's again one of my favorite episodes, and it was an absolute blast for me to have her in studio. And that's Carrie Mulligan. Carrie is obviously a master at her craft, but she makes her struggles so human that we can all believe for a minute that we can end up in the middle of London on stage. I enjoy talking to her so much, and I think we should just jump right in. Enjoy the show, and when it's over, wash your hands, take a minute to FaceTime a loved one, and hang in there, because don't forget we're all in this together. Now, on to the show. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actress Carrie Mulligan. When Carrie Mulligan first stepped foot on set of 2005's Pride and Prejudice, she was convinced she had won the lottery. It was her first professional job and her first time acting in front of a camera. But there she was, alongside Judi Dench, Kira Knightley, Brenda Blethyn, and Jenna Malone. As she describes it, the entire experience was like summer camp. It didn't feel like work at all. Well, Carrie was living her dream, but she was still convinced it was all a fluke. She remembers thinking, after this, I'll reapply to drama school and maybe I'll get in this time. Her first lead role came in 2009 with the coming-of-age film An Education. Her compelling performance led to an Academy Award nomination and widespread critical acclaim, even though Carrie was originally devastated when she watched herself on screen. She says, It was like listening to your voice on the answering machine and wincing because of how awful you sound. But multiply that by 500. Carrie was convinced her first shot would be her last, worrying, Sundance is going to be a disaster. They're going to send me home. Of course, as we all know, the opposite happened. Since then, she's amassed a stunning body of work on screen and on stage. Films like Shame, Far From the Madding Crowd, Mudbound, Inside Lewin Davis, and plays like Girls and Boys and The Seagull, and many more. In her newest performance, Paul Dano's directorial debut, Wildlife, she plays a messy, complicated woman struggling to find her identity underneath the crippling expectations that come with her role as a wife and mother in the 1960s. Somewhat surprisingly, her character has generated controversy among those used to more idealistic portrayals of women. She says, It's amazing that we still live in a world where a real, messy, complex woman expressing herself in a multitude of ways is dismissed as unrealistic because she's not what we want to see. Carrie joins off-camera to talk about battling stage fright, learning how to put her insecurities in perspective, and why sometimes the key to unlocking a character is to take off your shoes. So pull up a chair and listen in. 
Carey. Hi, Sam. You know, before we start talking about wildlife and all the other fascinating things you've been doing, I owe you a big thank you because a few years back I made a film with your husband, Marcus, mm. and it was a documentary and there were a lot of producer cooks in the kitchen. Mm. And so there was quite a bit of back and forth with cuts and edits. And I remember sending him the film and him being on the phone with it saying, oh my God, watching myself at first was such a horrible experience. But then Carrie saw it and she said I came off good in it and I relaxed. <laughs> and I thought, I don't even know this woman, but she totally did me a solid favor. You're welcome. From the other side of the world, you know. It was great. Thank you for saying that. It, it really was. But it made me think of this, this thing that must happen to everybody the first time they see themselves as a lead in a film, mm. where you're how you are in your head, mm. and then you see how you are on a screen. Mm. And, and it made me wonder about, about the sort of your first experience with that yeah. on, on, on a leading film, which I assume would be an education. Yeah. What, what was sort of your initial reaction to watching yourself? Yeah, really, really bored. I thought I didn't do anything. Bored. Yeah, I, I remember calling my mum, and they brought me out to LA like a week before Sundance to, I think, to like meet to get a publicist. And they showed me the film, and I watched it on my own in a um, screening room. And I called my mum afterwards, and I was, I think, almost in tears. And I was saying, "Mum, it's so boring. Like I don't do anything with my face. I just." It's just like my face and it's so big and I don't, I'm just not interesting, like nothing's happening. I'm not, you know, I'm just, it just looks sort of wooden and awful. And, um, and I was like, it's going to be a disaster. Sundance is going to be a disaster. Like they're going to send me home. It's awful. And I No was, need to get a publicist. I know, and I do great press myself. I was terrified. Like I was like, it's all over. Like that was, you know, and it's, this is going to be like really embarrassing. Really? Yeah. It was, it was like listening to your voice on an answering machine, you know, and that like, the way that it makes you wince, like how ridiculous and awful you sound, but times 500 and I, I was just, yeah, I thought it was all done there. That job was so interesting because it was the first time I played a lead in the film, but I started acting when I was 18. I played only supporting roles and, and no one was watching me. And when I was in plays, like, you know, the first play I did, you know, was at the Royal Court Theatre and I played the kid in it, and like no one was watching me. They were watching like Anastasia Hilly and the other actors who were on stage who were really well known. So I'd done all these jobs where I was like background supporting, and then we were doing this film, and it sort of just felt like that, like, oh, well, this is a tiny film, and this will play at the Curzon Soho for a week. Like, no one's gonna see this, so like, I'll just keep kind of, I didn't feel like the pressure of like a leading role. So I didn't really prep or like have any kind of way into it. I just did it, and then saw it, and thought it was so dull. I was so dull, not the film, but I was so dull to watch. And it, I'd never really thought about, I didn't have a way of working really until I did that film. I just sort of, I was just winging it. So you didn't get pressure from any powers that be going into that film of, oh, now you're the lead and... No, it was the weirdest thing because the film went from like, I mean, that film was around for to like two years probably, or maybe even longer before I, before it actually happened, maybe even longer. I was like, oh, it'll be like Pride and Prejudice, which was my first ever job, which right. felt like a film and I knew that it would be in cinemas, but this felt like so indie that I was like, this could go t straight to DVD. You know, I just hadn't, you know, so there was no pressure associated with it because it was like, this is tiny and no one will see it. And, Must have know. been a blessing in disguise to, yeah, it was to walk in like that. Because in Pride and Prejudice, did you feel like unseen? Yeah. Like you could just sort of do In the best thing? way, it was great. I mean, I literally, it was my first ever professional job and, and thank God for Jenna Malone who played my sister. Right. So she was Lydia, I was Kitty, and they're kind of like twins until Lydia um, leaves um, sort of midway through the story. And I just copied everything she did. Like, really? Copied her. Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. I was on a film set and it was like Judy Dench was over there. I was right. completely. Um, and yet you weren't like there for a lark. This is what you wanted to do. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Like, this, is, this had been everything I had dreamt about doing, but it just came to it that when I got there, I didn't know what to do because. And, I, and I'd never ever done anything in front of a camera. The first time I got in front of a camera was my audition for Pride and Prejudice. So this was the first time I was doing any kind of acting on screen. Then also the first part I ever got was Kitty, which is, who's a completely, you know, who's just this sort of out of control, giggling mess of a teenager. So it was so big and everything had to be so kind of, she was so loud and messy and um, 
uh, that was you know that was so not me at all and uh, and so I was just like well she knows what she's doing she's a proper actress I'll just do everything she does and <laughs> just copy Jenna so how, what, what's the process of copying like literally we we develop this laugh because they're always laughing the girls right and so we we developed in we had a great that was like one of the only times in my entire career where we had like real rehearsal like we had weeks of rehearsal we had a whole week that was just dancing and then we had you know, rehearsals as a family. We had a whole day where we went to the Bennett house and it was totally empty and we played games in there all day, like sardines and hide and seek. You know, so we really like properly kind of bonded. And then we came up with this laugh that they did where we wanted all the sisters to kind of have the same laugh. So I can't remember who came up with it, but basically we all kind of, you'd kind of hyperventilate. <laughs> so stupid, but we'd all go... <laughs> And then by doing that, somehow that always just made us hysterical. And so that would be our laugh. So Jenna and I, before every take, would be standing like, you know, usually we were running in and out of rooms. Like that was our role. In the, my, my role, certainly, she had a much more of a role in the film. But my role was essentially to run in and laugh or run in in tears or something. So we would stand like behind the door going... <laughs> <laughs> like something about both doing it would just make us completely hysterical. No, it Maybe works. I'm testament to the fact it works. Um, yeah, so that was the whole job was just me being like, and it was just so great. It was like summer camp. That wasn't a job. That was like I'd won some sort of prize in a, you know, <laughs> television show to get to be on a film set. Did Jenna catch on that you were uh, that you were copying her? Was she okay with the whole deal? She fully, fully took me under her wing. Like, she did? Yeah, completely. She totally knew that I had no idea what I was doing, and she was like, I've got you. you maybe you just have this quality where people want to take, take care of me. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I was a complete fish out of water, and they were amazing. I, I imagine that it wasn't lost on you that you're surrounded by, like, the greatest actors, you know, Brenda Blevin and Judi Dench. And were you looking for... I don't know, moments to ask advice or, or, or is it just like, I'm just going to absorb it all? I mean, I honestly thought the whole thing was such a fluke that I didn't, I was still, when I was shooting that, thinking like, well, after this, I'll reapply to drama school or something. You know, I didn't think like that would lead to anything else. So, so it wasn't like, um, I wasn't on there being like, well, now this is my career started. See, now that's so, pretty funny that this is a big film. Yeah. Big cast and you're like... Well, I'll have to go back to drama school. Well, it was, it was like, you know, it was a ridiculous first job. It just didn't feel, it all felt very surreal. So I don't think I ever, I never, have, I don't think I've ever asked anyone for advice. When someone's starting out at anything and something happens like that, like you're in this film and then scripts start to be sent, what is the message you were sort of telling yourself as to why this was happening? I think that was part of the problem of that whole year for me was like, you know, because then it kind of went into award season and all that kind of stuff. And I think I genuinely felt like I don't quite know why anyone is letting me into these parties. Really? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I took it way too seriously, like way too seriously um, looking back. But I was a bit like Meryl Streep's over there. Like, this isn't, I just shouldn't be here. This is sort of awful. Um, so I think that was part of the problem of that year was like, I was analyzing why I had why people were reacting like that. Did you feel like you'd tricked people? Like, yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> I felt like I, I was like, you think that's good? All right, you know, I, I don't know. It just felt weird. But like, I also think sometimes like people just really want to get behind a thing, and like, you know, maybe sometimes someone just calls it, and then everyone falls in line. Like, I do think a lot of the stuff with Oscar stuff and award season is like you become sort of particularly, you know, I think they they love every so often to just find like a girl and like make a massive deal out of her and it doesn't necessarily correlate to that performance or whatever it can just be like a moment in time where you know or you wear the right outfit of a, a big party and then people think like you're you they can dress you and then that becomes part of it like I think there's so many things that feed into yeah. that that are about campaigning and like you know if, if, it, if it comes down to that, then I shook a lot of hands and I held a lot of babies, you know, and I think that is all part of it. And to try and view it as a meritocracy is just naive. So yeah, I, yeah. you know, so yeah, I think I probably was questioning what 
the fuck I was doing then. Gosh, I, I wonder if there's a way to put words to that experience of something you dreamed about happening your whole life and mm. then it happens like that. And well, that, that, uh, that also happened with Judy Dench on Pride and Prejudice because I had had an actual vivid dream about working with Judy Dench. Is and that then, true? Yeah, when I was like 15 and then my first ever job, the first day of rehearsals, Judy Dench walked up to me and introduced herself to me and said, I believe we have the same agent, which we do. And I was like, <laughs> you were like, gosh, either I have a pretty good agent or you should get a new agent because this is my first job. Yeah, what the <laughs> hell. Um, but that was like, I, could, I almost couldn't process that. It was just yeah. ridiculous. Well, we should talk about Wildlife because it's one of these films, I think, that it's really subtle and it's really good. Paul Dano directed it, first time director, wrote it with his wife, Zoe Kazan. And, and it's you and Jake Gyllenhaal and you play a couple that um, has one, an only child uh, named Ed Oxenbold, mm -hmm. right? And through the course of the film, your marriage falls apart. And I just wondered if seeing this script, if it stuck out to you as not a part for a woman that you get to see that often. And if that was the reason to jump on it. Yeah, that was the second reason. The first reason was reason. Paul directing it. So Paul calling me and saying, I'm going to send you a script um, that I'm going to direct. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, I'm doing it. But then I also, I do have that tendency to like jump on things. And so right. um, if I have a gut instinct about something, I'll, I'll be like, I'm in. And then sometimes I get in trouble because maybe a couple of days later, I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not in. <laughs> Which is a problem, which I'm working on. But with Paul, I was in my mind, I was like, I'm in. But then I stopped myself from saying it because I was like, but wait, wait to see what the part is. And then he emailed it um, and I read it and I was so happy that it was that good a part. And then it was like a complete no-brainer. I called him back like 90 minutes later. What struck you about it? Well, I think that she didn't have like a clear journey arc. Like there was no like beginning, middle and end to her. You know, there's something kind of messy about her story where there's not a traditional kind of cinematic journey and in between that is a whole lot of kind of misguided decisions um, and she's doing her very best to I think do the right thing um, but that it's just messy and pretty volatile and out of control and and really is like probably what you would see if you put a camera on any of the worst week of any of our lives like, sure right you know and I think that was I was so intrigued by that um, and not not coming to a place of like resolution felt really truthful I read a thing that happened recently where where there was some Q&A and and uh, <laughs> our friend in New York <laughs> yes but I, I think thank God for that because I feel like I feel like you were able to speak to this entire subject mm. based upon sort of being baited by someone who, who didn't get the film or didn't mm. understand. But basically the story was that he used the Q&A to criticize the performance and that this character was unsympathetic. And, and you were able to sort of, in your answer, brilliantly say, yes, I don't think that we're used to seeing Hmm. women on screen that are allowed to be messy and unsympathetic and are allowed to make choices that aren't for the good of their family hmm. and aren't for the, the good of the bigger picture. Hmm. And it, it sort of laid bare the architecture of, of kind of how women are depicted in films most of the time. Hmm. And it sort of got me thinking about if when reading this there was a subversive part of your brain that sort of almost expected some reaction like that or if... Yeah, I didn't expect it to be this strong. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly having done like 10 Q&As in the last two weeks, that sentiment hasn't been expressed in quite the same way, but we've definitely had it numerous times. I haven't had a match. I mean, he ripped into me, that guy, um, and into the performance. And he called the key. He was like, and that kid is just so namby-pamby and just takes everything and he doesn't say anything. I mean, it was just so unrealistic. And I was like, have you met a 14-year-old? <laughs> they're not like... They don't you speak know, to their parents they're not, at no, all. No, exactly. <laughs> like... Uh, but yeah, he was he was horrified by Jeanette, and it does it just speaks to what we expect and what we've come to expect from women that we see on screen, and um, and that's just what's modelled for us from you know from day one of what we see. And I think you know if you think about it, there is just and and I've certainly been offered these roles. It's the it's the sort of dutiful, um, earnest 
supportive wife who agrees with everything and chi- and like the wife to the great man is the you know and that and that they are usually long suffering but they don't act out they don't they fall in line and that's what we've come to expect now is that women are either absolute saints or they're like crack addicts who ruin your whole life you know we see that as well we see like the very 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 worst but we just don't see anything in between really um so that was certainly a draw to doing it but i I didn't think that the reaction would be this strong to the unlikable woman you start to wonder what storytelling role mm. in our society is mm. and, and the role it's played in sort of teaching women how to mm. behave mm. or something like that. Well, yeah, and she is, she's, she's modeling that. She's trying to copy what she's seen for 14 years. I think she's an impeccable mother and an impeccable wife, and she is being the all-around best American wife until this week, you know. Right. Um, so she's under that pressure as well of, of, you know, and that's what you see at the beginning of the film. She's wearing the apron, she's making the dinner perfectly, she's supporting him when he loses his job. It's just when he reneges on his side of the deal and the injustice that he can just fuck off and go and fight a wildfire. And she can't, you know. Like, why can he go off and have his, you know, search for identity and I'm, I'm stuck here, I can't go anywhere. When I started thinking about it, I realized that most films that you've done are comments, either intentionally or unintentionally, about Mm. how women are treated in the world. And it makes me wonder if throughout your career and and all the things that you've been offered, all the parts that we haven't seen that you've turned down, and Mm. if the architecture of that kind of storytelling, that viewpoint has sort of been laid bare a little bit to you. Yeah, I mean, I've never had a plan for how to do this except to play people that I believe are real people. But obviously, in retrospect, I can see a through line between all of them, particularly Far From the Madden Crowd, Suffragette, Wildlife, um, that these are women who are out of their time. Um, but I think that's, you know, I, I remember we were talking about this when Far From the Madden Crowd came out, but when that book came out, it was panned by the critics because she was, uh, because they said she was, it was a totally unrealistic betrayal of a woman. Same as Wildlife. That's not how women behave. They wouldn't behave like that. They wouldn't be so, um, you know, outrageous. It's just not realistic. And people ripped it to shreds, and then it, you know, became a classic. But Doesn't that piss you off? I can't get mad at Victorian men. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's just... But, but it, it, it's kind of amazing that we are still in that world where you right. see a, a real woman expressing herself in a, you know, in a multitude of ways, and, and it's dismissed as being unrealistic because we just don't want to see that. Well, that's the irony of that guy's comment, mm. probably, is that the reason it affected him so strongly is because it was portrayed in a realistic way enough to get his hackles up. Yeah, and it bothered him. And we had a really, really... We had a guy the other night who asked us what he was like. What, what's the deal with all the sexual tension between her and her son? What? <laughs> um, You're like that's about you. Fully, fully. But right, isn't that interesting? But I just that wasn't the way that he framed the question wasn't the question to answer. So I I kind of shut it down. But then we did have a conversation about it with you know I talked about it with this with a psychologist who reframed the question and and. You know, it is interesting, but I think what, what Jeanette's trying to do is, you know, this is all about reinvention. This is about, like, I'm a, I've been a mother and a wife for so long, I can't remember who I am. Like, I can't remember if I had a personality outside of being these two things to these two men. Like, I'm now just mum and just wife. And, like, I was someone when I was 19. Now I can't remember who it is. But then... You know, so part of what she's doing, I think, is trying to completely destroy that image that she had, which feels to her like a lie. Like, I'm not that woman. I'm not that perfect woman. I'm not, you know, everything you thought I was, I'm not. So erase all that, forget who that was, and we'll start again. Um, so, you know, part of what she, the way that she talks to him, the sort of harshness to her tone, or the way that she's so blunt or dismissive is like trying to eradicate the former version of herself so she can start again and be right. someone new, someone more honest, but it's just misguided because he's 14 and he doesn't know how to process it. Um, but that's where the lack of boundaries come from. So we did have that conversation, but the way he framed it was just creepy. <laughs> <laughs> so that had to be shut down. <laughs> yes. He also was like, well, they spent a lot of time in the bathroom. We're like, what the fuck are you that's, talking about? That's what you just say, security. I, almost, <laughs> almost, yeah. I wonder, after you, you know, immediately said yes, what what was the scary part of the process of, of wrapping your head around this for you? Yeah, I think sh- the, the complexity of that 
of her struggle of whatever she's going through in that week. It was kind of figuring that out. So I needed to have a few ideas of what it was that she was going through. And that was actually made much easier by just doing it. Like once we were there, we were dealing with the costumes. We were, you know, that I could map it out better. But when you're playing someone who's out of control, so to speak, which she seems to be for a portion of this film, you actually need to be completely in control. Otherwise, it's just messy. You have to make certain decisions. You have to make lots and lots of very small concrete decisions that make the thing make sense because otherwise it's just like it's not fun to see someone like just constantly crying or or you know being you, you have to have like an idea you have to plan of how you're going to get through it otherwise it's just sort of messy and when you read a script are you looking for lines or certain clues that'll that'll turn into like keys for you uh not initially. I think there are some lines that become more important as I as I went on, but not no, not going into it. I mean, I'm looking for like a, you know a rich and interesting and and dialogue because so often women have nothing to say in films. <laughs> it's amazing how if you actually count up how many lines you have in a film, sometimes as a woman, it's like. Um, but but I'm not looking at that. Those things don't really key in until I'm on set, like, and then they become more and more meaningful. Um, and then they sometimes become like part of the fabric of the character, but they're not things that I kind of pick out initially. In thinking about you sitting down with this script and sort of trying to work out how you're going to tackle and everything, mm. what is the hardest thing about your job that, that you continually kind of bump up against? Just good old insecurity. Like, really? just believing, not feeling confident about anything I'm doing for, like, the first three days of filming, maybe. Um, when does that fear manifest itself? Does it ever manifest itself in the prep of, like, this is coming, or it's... Not really. It's, like, it's day one. I, you know, get on set, and I'm suddenly paralyzed by fear and think, like, this is all wrong. So I don't feel it massive. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just excited in the prep. I'm, you know... And prep has changed as well. Like prep when I was 23 is totally different to prep now. Like, yeah, tell me, tell me how it's different. Because I have two children, oh, true. and you know, so I I did a a monologue this year that was like 90 minutes on stage alone. And right, girls and boys. Girls and boys, and I walked into day one of rehearsal and I didn't know a single line and I hadn't given it any thought. Because I had a five-month-old and a two-year-old. So I just showed up at work and, and like we did it. And somehow, you know, I crammed the words in so that by the time I did the first preview, I, I knew the play. But I, I didn't spend like six months before that. And I'd signed on, I'd been attached to it for six months before. But I didn't do a jot of work on it because I had two children to look after and I just couldn't. So, you know, it, prep is different now. And I, I think that there's something kind of freeing about that that you know I think I used to go into every job feeling so unbelievably unqualified to be there that I would spend months you know literally on Gatsby I did months of reading and Geneva King I read every letter that she was ever sent or or written and you know I read like six books about Zelda Fitzgerald and I you know went to Princeton and looked at the archives I mean I did everything really so pre-child Carrie was obsessive I mean, it varied still within that, depending on like how quickly I came onto the job or whatever. But yeah, I would do everything I could pre, pre kids, and then. And did it help? Hard. I mean, it made me feel like I'd done my homework, and that gave me confidence. And for me, it's always about like, do I have enough confidence to be there? But um, I don't know. I don't know. Probably, probably not. But then, then I did. First job I did after I had Evie was Mudbound, and. Um, I didn't get to do a whole lot for that and just kind of like got there and was like amazing actors, amazing director, great script, like just give it a go, <laughs> you know. Well, so it's just different now and, I, and I'm sure as they get older I'll find a structure again to be able to like take my time to, you know, go off and do stuff. But, you know, as it is, like I don't want to be away unless I absolutely have to and, right. and that's, that is like filming. But it brings up a question of... And maybe this ties into having kids and not having enough time to prep, but I wonder if there's, if you're always sort of also searching for how to get back to the actress you were mm. before you knew so much. Mm. Do, like, do you ever think about that? Like, Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of, there's things I've learned that now I can't do without. So there are things that like, even without sort of months and months of 
prep on wildlife, I knew going into that film that I would need like a soundtrack for her life, um, and I'd need like a couple of things that were important in the book, and then I'd need a couple of things from a poem or something to hook into. Like, I think the very least I need to do is create enough backstory that I can invent things as I go along. So, like, in the scene where Jerry is leaving for the wildfire, it opens on silence from both of us, and we've got... We're kind of midway through, like, probably a four-hour argument. Right. And it's, you know, it's got to the point where the argument where you've screamed, 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 you've both cried, and now you're quiet again, and no-one's talking, it's like a standoff, and then our son comes home. And in that moment... You know, I'm inventing things about our wedding or when I'm, you know, so those things. But what I used to do before when I was back in my single non-family days was do all of that before I got there and like have it all kind of mapped out in my head. Now I'm just sort of like, you know, I'll listen to a song on my iPhone before that take starts. And then as that take starts, I'll be hearing that song thinking about this thing and then the scene starts. So it's like, it's much more off the sort of, off the, how do you say it? You can generate a memory quicker and and make it real to you. And it feels more real having not thought about it too much. There's a basic amount of stuff that I need to be able to like have it in the scene so that it always feels like there's something else going on apart from just, you know, that there's a sort of inner life going on. Right. Now, Paul being a first-time director on this, mm. but being an actor, it made me curious if you'd been, ever been directed by an actor before and if it was a different experience to have someone who really understands that process. I don't think, no, I haven't been ever directed by an actor before. But yeah, I mean, he had that extra thing where he could see, like, you know, every time I was holding back because I was a little bit afraid to do too much or, you know, I was not really kind of standing behind my choices. He would know when to step in and, like, encourage me or... He could see that. He could see it. And he could see, like... Yeah, I remember the scene where Jake leaves with the wildfire and then we got to shooting it, we kind of got stuck in a rut and, not, and we both were getting kind of frustrated. And before we got to the point where that kind of implodes and becomes kind of a problem, Paul, like, stopped us and we did some weird, like... Ex- acting exercise thing that I've never done before in my whole life and and then took five minutes to do that and then went back and then the scene was was great again so like he was so good at noticing probably because he's experienced all of it himself but like he was great at noticing those things and like and just changing it up so that we could keep going were there any fear that first time director that it was going to be difficult no not with Paul I kind of thought like you know he's so cool Paul and and I was like, well, 28-day film, you know, period film, like, it's really stressful. Like, maybe I'll see him, like, ruffled. And I <laughs> never saw it. He was just always, like, completely chilled out. You just needed the secret camera in his hotel room. I know. And I'm sure if I'd seen, you know, and I know now, obviously, after we've shot it, that it was, like, obviously really stressful and things were changing all the time and the stuff that happens on indie filmmaking where you like lose a location and or you wanted 30 extras and you can have seven and all right, that stuff right. was happening like every day but he just never let it kind of come into the set. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. If you're feeling stressed or depressed or want professional help with anxiety, insomnia, or any issue affecting your well-being, BetterHelp is available. BetterHelp is online counseling that offers licensed professional therapists who specialize in many different areas, including anxiety and depression. You know, as someone who I've certainly done therapy throughout my life at different times, and one of the hardest things could be finding someone that fits with you, that can see you at the time that you can be seen, and that has an understanding of what you're going through. BetterHelp Online Counseling has solved all of these issues. First off, they couldn't be more convenient. You simply fill out a questionnaire to help assess your needs, and you get matched with a counselor you'll love in less than 24 hours. You can easily schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist, plus securely exchange unlimited messages. And if for any reason you're unhappy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. So you can get professional help when you want it, wherever you are. You know, BetterHelp is a truly affordable option. And for our listeners, they're giving 10% off the first month using the discount code CAMERA. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com camera. 
That's betterhelp.com slash camera. Now back to the show. I read that your first love was not going to the movies every weekend and mm. wanting to be on the screen, but it was it was theater. Mm-hmm. You land on Broadway in The Seagull playing mm. Nina. Mm. And, and I, I wondered, like, in the same way that I wondered about an education and, and Pride and Prejudice, mm. I wonder if, if having a dream like that and being so excited about about that kind of life and then landing there, mm. if it was overwhelming and if you could just tell me a little bit about that experience. I'd done it in London and I and certainly starting in London I was it, it was a really huge scary thing. But equally in that, like I wasn't well known. Kristen Scott Thomas was playing Alcard and Achua Telegrafo was playing uh, Tregorin and Mackenzie Crook was playing Constantine. So I was the nobody. So again, like I didn't feel like I know it was like a great part, but our cardinal was Kristen so I just felt like oh well everyone's watching it doesn't really matter what I'm like and London went well I I felt like that I totally was living and breathing that part by the time we got to New York I remember there was this there's a a line in the play um, where she in act two she has this very long conversation with Tregor and she doesn't really say anything and Tregor is just like waxing lyrical on um, writing and um, and she's just completely head over heels in love with him and he walks off the stage at the end and she's on her own and she sort of looks out over the lake i.e. the audience and says I'm dreaming and nine times out of ten in London I found that kind of excruciating like I just I just couldn't I remember not like I remember like walking out of a rehearsal once because I started crying because I was so I couldn't do it because I just felt so exposed like talking to the like not talking to the audience but being completely alone and and being and I I always really struggled with it in London and then I remember the first night in New York I was on my own and I looked out at this theater which was the Walter Kerr theater which is where I saw I had seen Kevin Bacon do and play there when I was 14 and I come on a trip with my mum to New York and I was on my own in that theatre in front of like 900 people. And I said, I'm dreaming. And it was a completely, it was like, I really was. Like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I couldn't fathom that I was there doing that part on that stage less than 10 years after I'd watched a play there and sort of yeah. dreamt about being on Broadway. So I said, I'm, and every night on, in Broadway, that line just came out like, no, it was never an issue again. Um, because I had really experienced what she was experiencing by having that conversation with Tregor and like she's like fucking hell I cannot believe I'm in this uh, in with this genius writer this man who's like a god and he's you know my life is forever changed and like I felt like that on stage like my life is forever changed I, I'm I cannot believe my luck I can't believe I'm here I'm dreaming and it never was an issue again wow yeah it was really cool have you ever <laughs> experienced stage fright yeah you have yeah tell me that when I did Girls and Boys this year, we got to the last week of rehearsal and I couldn't get through more than like half a page without my throat closing up and bursting really? into tears. And Why do you think that was? Because it was... Because it was direct to the audience. Direct yeah. to the audience. Yeah. And a, and a monologue is an incredibly difficult thing to rehearse because the other character is the audience and you just don't have it. And right. so you're trying to rehearse a play with no other. It's like rehearsing. It's just you're rehearsing on your own. And it doesn't matter if they bring in, like, I mean, they were great. They brought in, like, they'd bring in, like, 12 people who worked in the theatre to come and watch me rehearse when I did a run-through. But it didn't actually help because the contract was wrong. Like, I was meant to be in a costume, under lights, on a raised stage. Like, there was, in, with a monologue, I think it has to be a storytelling mode and you need to have you need to have some authority in a way um, of just being the one that they're listening to and that doesn't work when you're on the same level in a lit dressing room where there's no there's no magic there there's no like no artifice so on the Friday before the first preview I hadn't I hadn't got through a run through yet I couldn't get it out I was just my throat was closing up I was running off to the balcony outside and we were having all these crisis chats and, you know, I was I was genuinely like, what's the worst thing that would happen if, if I just bailed on this? Like, Oh, really? You yeah, got yeah, to yeah. That and, and actually, Vicky Featherston, I think what was so great was Vicky, who's the artistic director, and Lindsay, who is my director, said, like, we can just cancel it. Like, it's a play, you know. And if it's going to be a really hard thing, if it's going to hurt you, like, just don't do it. 
we can cancel it. And they were so, they meant it. It was the most amazing. You don't think that was reverse psychology? I don't think it was. I mean, obviously, like, it worked, but I don't, (laughs) I don't think it was. I think they meant it. That's the kind of people they are, though. They're very, like, it's just. So you were in a full panic. Oh, big time. And how did you sort of like, how did you sleep with that? I just had to live with the possibility for a couple of days that it might just not work. That it, it was could like just dread? Be kind of, but kind of. But then at the same time, I, I said to them, like, they were like, look, we can cancel. I was like, we don't need to. I know, I, I know that as, as soon as I've got a costume on and I'm on the stage and the lights are up, I'll be able to do it. Um, I, I just can't do it in the rehearsal room. I, I'm not being a dick. I'm not being like I just I just can't get it out. But I know that once I'm in costume, I'll do it. And I didn't know the words by Sunday night. Still, I didn't know the whole script. And my mum like, sent me off. She was like, "You and Marcus, my husband, off to a re- go to a, a hotel and just spend." The, and she took the kids and she was like, "And just spend the whole day and just and just learn it and just finish learning it." Because I still didn't have the whole thing. Was Marcus like? I don't want to have to learn it. <laughs> Marcus, <laughs> Marcus was great um, because he's endlessly patient, but it was just like repetition, repetition, repetition over and over and over again. It still hadn't gone in my mind. It was 16,000 words. Like it just hadn't gone in my I'd oh only my had four God. weeks to learn it. Maybe that's why your throat was closed. So it was, it was very, it was like all panic stations. Everyone was f- kind of freaking out, but pretending that everything was fine. Like no, no one was, everyone was trying to like manage it, but no one wanted to make a big deal. But I think probably everyone was secretly going like, fuck, she's not gonna, like this run. People are paying That cliche tickets. of like, oh, I'm the star and she doesn't have her lines. Yeah, yeah. No yeah. one can tell her. Yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, mum was like, go and learn them. So went off, learned the lines. Felt, and then we went in and, we, and I did a dress rehearsal. And I got halfway through and I called it because I was feeling really ill. And the second half of the play starts to go into the really difficult stuff. And I was like, I don't need to go. But we'd, we'd done half. So I was like, so I know I can do half. So now I just need to be able to do the whole thing. But then I was, I That's couldn't understand scary. why I'd felt so uncomfortable. And st- I hadn't, I'd felt fine enough to do it. Like I got it out, but I, there was something that wasn't right. And um, and then I said to Lindsay, can I just take my shoes off for the next one? Can I just not wear shoes? Because I just don't, I just can't do it wearing shoes. <laughs> and now I tell the story and I sound like such a weirdo. I wasn't like going to say anything. Such a diva, but it's not, it was just like, uh, there was a, there was a kind of, dance quality to it where you needed to be like light on your feet to be able to like move and particularly with the children like and there was something about like clumping around on the stage on shoes that didn't feel like it worked anyway so the next night we did another dress rehearsal I took my shoes off I went on stage I did it barefoot and it was fine and then we the, went the crew into the was like, and was oh my God, she took her shoes off. <laughs> I know, they're all, I know, but I was in London, so they were fine. In New York, that would have been an actual, like, health and safety thing. <laughs> right, oh, um, sure, would have come But in, in London, they were like, cool. Uh, but yeah, it was, and then it was never a problem again. So that was the most stage fright I've ever had. Wow. God. Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> well, I, you know, you say that, and I wonder about if, you know, I wonder what it felt like full house right before you Mm. walk out on stage like Mm. do you remember wondering like is this gonna work I was fucking terrified but I was like above everything else above any of the shit that you're doing you're a mum and you have two kids so my god this is so so I held my daughter's hand and I held my baby and then stood backstage like that for like 10 seconds and then I walked on did it but I was like if this all goes fucking wrong who gives a shit? I have got two beautiful children. Like, so like I get a bad review or like I have to walk off. Fuck it. They're never going to give a shit. Like they don't care. So I'll just, I like held my daughter's hand, held my son, like thought about them. And then I, then the lights went out and I walked on stage and then we did the show. God, you know, you say that and I realize everybody that's in these high pressure situations where mm. it feels like mm. everything's riding on it mm. everyone has to find their own way mm. to somehow putting their mm. themselves in order their priorities are well, exactly and i do you know when i and i because i lean towards being anxious and and you know and insecure about stuff i have to constantly remind myself that it's it's you know, I I'm, love my job. I'm so proud of the job that I do, but I'm not performing brain surgery. I'm I'm dressing up and pretending. And like the whole reason I wanted to do this forever was that it was the most fun thing, like the most fun job. And, you know, you get to create a piece of art with a bunch of fun people. Like that was the point. Yeah, don't so, spoil it for yourself. By yeah, it. don't ruin it by thinking like it's a play, you know. Um, it's a play, it's a movie, like don't, uh, 
you know, people have, there, there's so much more in the world where people really are living at the highest stakes and the jobs that they do really are life and death. Like nothing I ever do will be that. That's such a privilege. And I'm so lucky to just be able to like be a storyteller. And that's how I talk about it with my daughter. I, you know, I, she wants to know what I'm doing. And I tell her I, I tell stories and like not the best job ever just to be a storyteller. Um, so when I get in my own way, I have to remind myself, like, you just tell stories. Like, that's all it is. Well, I think it's a hard thing because I think to be able to get to the level where you are, you have to take it so seriously. Mm. You have to almost trick your body into it being mm. life and death. And, mm. like, to, to claim ownership as an artist, mm. I think that takes, like, that's not something you can necessarily do if you're just a mom. Mm. You mm. know? Mm. Like, you have to go through that period where it is life and death for you, I would assume, mm. to get there. Yeah, and I, and I mean, that's probably why I'm so, you know, I've always felt so connected to the seagull because, you know, I really felt like that. I really fully felt like Nina when I was younger. Like, I, would, I was desperate to be an actress. Like, I used to cry about the prospect of it not working out. Like, I was fully, fully, fully... It was all I wanted from the world. So I have lived through the, like, nothing matters more. Nothing matters more than this happening. But now I don't feel that way. Now yeah. there are many, many things that matter more. You've grown up. Yes, thank God. What I hear you talking about, though, when you're talking about not being able to finish the rehearsal because the audience isn't there, mm. or you're going to figure out the character when you're on set. Like, mm. you sort of need that reality. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'm not my my best judge, I think. I think sometimes I do a performance and I think it went really well and it doesn't mean anything to them, you know. Like, particularly on stage, I've had shows where I felt like, oh, yeah, that was really great. And then the director will come back and be like, that wasn't, we couldn't really get to you. Like, maybe so I was living a bit more that? for myself. Uh, get bummed out for you a minute. You have to ignore either yourself or the director. <laughs> like, you have to sort of, like, decide, right? Yeah. Well, I suppose, like, particularly with girls and boys, like, I didn't have to live that fully out every night because it was such dark material that, and it's not, and I, I've, I've never found it possible to do that eight shows a week. Not by any choice, but just that, like, you tend to have a really good show that's really truthful and you totally believe in it, and the next night it just isn't there for some reason, and you kind of have to act it more than I would like to. But the thing that sort of gives me relief from that is that that's generally not their experience of it. Like, their experience will be different, and sometimes they will be less connected to the shows where you're really, really feeling it. Um, right. And that, that's, you know, it's more interesting to watch someone try not to cry than it is to watch someone bawling their eyes out. Um, it's more moving to watch someone try and hold back their emotion than it is to just watch them let it all go. So sometimes it can, you know, I'm probably indulgent and I think that it's much more powerful than it is. But it's it's kind of a relief to think like, gosh, they will, you know, their experience of this show is going to be totally different from mine. And you can't do much about that except just try and be honest and be honest and find new ways of telling the same story. But, um, you know, it, it's I, all of that is to say that I probably don't, you know, I've probably got a sort of skewed idea of what good is because it's um, probably good to me is not as interesting as like some other version of it. One of the things that, that I read that you said about this play was that you've, you've spent your whole career trying to forget that people are watching you. Mm. And obviously this is the play where mm. you can't forget that. But I, it made me think of uh, the movie Shame mm. and specifically the scene in the nightclub where you sing... New York, New York. Mm. And I was just curious about, in a situation like that, how you step up and do something that vulnerable and forget that you're being watched when there's a camera. I mean, that looked like a fairly normal lens. I'm assuming the camera's right here. And, and if, that was, if that was in, if you look back at your career, one of, the, one of the more challenging days or one of those things where you have to get over yourself and not have that judge or that self-critic. That whole film was really, I mean, I think one of the first things we shot was this, was a, the scene where, I, where Michael's in his bedroom and he's overhearing Sissy on the phone and I'm sitting on the window ledge trying, like, begging my horrible, abusive boyfriend to take me back. Um, and Steve just asked me to improvise, so I was just improvising this awful conversation. And it started in the most awkward way where I started and then... We ran for like a couple of minutes and then it was sort of turned out all right. But even that was like 
that to be the first thing that I did in that job was like, oh, this is what this film's going to be like. It's going to be terrifying. So, um, so, so almost by the time like a I got to, of... Yeah, so by the time I got to shooting that, that scene in the Boom Boom Room, I was like, I kind of was in that space where we, the every day with Steve was like, okay, here we are. <laughs> like, this is what this kind of film is. It's just, um, you know, and I'd been, I'd done the scene where you meet my character where I'm like completely naked. And, you know, all of this every day was like... Um, pretty full on um, so by the time we got to that you know and I'd had a lot of rehearsal with that um, with the with the singing coach um, and I had a whiskey <laughs> uh, it's the only time I've ever had alcohol on set but it super helped and then I did it and it was actually fine we did like three full takes it was all one take and then we we had a break and he came up to me and he was like so she can't have just sung one song right and I was like no, I don't think so. No, she must have done like a set. And he was like, Kate, so we need a set. And I was like, what do you mean? And he really? said, well, yeah, we need like like the last two lines of a song. So that you, so we'll like, that will be the last two lines of the song. And then like people will clap and then you go and sit down and then the scene starts with you guys. And I was like, okay, well, what do you want me to sing? He was like, oh, I don't know. Um, just, just make something up. I was like, well, what do you mean make something up? He said, well, we can't have a song that anyone knows because uh, we can't get the rights for it and we can't check the rights so just like make up a like make up a song um and just you know, just do that and then go and sit down i said steve i don't know i'm fucking i don't know how to make it he was like you're an artist aren't you and i was like mm, yeah <laughs> so he said well so just make up a song and then he just walked off and i was like all right <laughs> so then i had to get up and like I sang the last two lines of this song about. So you, like you a, went and wrote a song. I wrote like two lines and like you know it was like something about a rose and then you know and then after in post they added a piano on top of it and then yeah. I could see that going very badly where you, if you're somebody else, you'll call your agent and like, this director's asked me to write a song. Steve McQueen's it, also like a friggin' genius. So I don't think any. I think everyone would be you. You know you just want to want to do the right thing but it doesn't come from he, he's not remotely combative it's not like he's 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 like a cheerleader he's like yeah you're a fucking artist go and write a song you're like did you not think to it, say you're an artist <laughs> you write a song <laughs> no he was already doing all his artistry <laughs> but I, I I kind of you know it was I was completely for a moment like well fuck and then I just thought what are you going to do you're going to like whinge about this or you're not going to like come up with a song so I went up and made up a song but um, I loved that. Like, I'd make 15 films with Steve where it was all like that because it's the most live theatre. You know, it just feels completely visceral and real and nothing is acting and everything is just real life and that's my favourite way to work. It makes me wonder about how many missed opportunities there are in general mm. for your calibre of artist mm. where you're, you're excited to be challenged and you're excited to be pushed out of your comfort zone mm. and it's just sort of not done or, or mm. that there's a certain amount of respect that kind of keeps anyone from mm. from asking you to, you know what mm. I mean? I guess I just wonder if those are things that that you go towards or that you avoid. Totally, I mean that's the whole reason I, Girls and Boys, the biggest draw to doing that was that it was a comedy like it starts as a comedy, it's funny and it's just anecdotal storytelling, it's funny, It's there's nothing and and I'd never done that before, and and it scared the shit out of me, like trying to be funny in a Cockney accent, no less, um, and just talking directly to an audience. And I'd spent my entire career like being like, you know, not there, just not there, just forget they're not there, forget the focus pillar isn't there, forget the camera isn't there, like just focus on the other actor, tell the truth, look in their eyes, and then was like, I'm going to do a monologue where I'm just going to look at the people, and and uh, you know, and. And I didn't had no idea how scary that was till I was actually doing it. But the reason I did it was because it scared the crap out of me. And you know, and I think there is something addictive about that. Like that's what I got from Steve was like terrifying, going toe to toe with Michael Fassbender. Like he's an extraordinary actor, um, and Steve challenged us constantly. But like that's kind of an addictive thing, like wanting to be. And I think people are really risk averse, and they are yeah. in in our industry. And they, they everyone wants to play it safe. Everyone wants to follow the algorithm that gets the most bums on seats and gets the most money in the box office or gets the most awards. But there's totally not. That's just not where great storytelling lies. Um, so it's people who are really bold, like Paul, who wants to tell a story about a quote unquote unlikable woman, or um, 
you know, way they, they, that's where they sort of lives as those kind of interesting. Um, but that's what I get. So that's the stuff I kind of try and seek out is like what's going to be, what's going to give that feeling of like make up a song, you know. Yeah. Um, and then the heart starts going. Yeah. And the, yeah. So but the, and then when you come out through the other side, it's like you have superpowers. Yes. Well, exactly. And that's what that's what girls and boys felt like is like it felt like a tightrope walk. And I, and I would come off stage being like, oh, I didn't fall off. I didn't, like, I just did a tightrope walk between the Twin Towers and I didn't fall off because I managed to keep an audience engaged for 90 minutes. Like, but it does, you just do feel like you've performed a magic trick and you can't, uh, you know, can't quite believe you got away with it. And that's massively, like, you just, that's such a great feeling. Do you like those situations in real life? Like, is it easier to sing in character in shame than it is maybe to sing at a dinner party. Oh my God. I had to sing for Inside Lewin Davis. They had a concert um, for the film and they had like Patti Smith and like everyone who was involved in the film already um, and all these extraordinary artists and they asked everyone to sing and I had to sing because I was in the film and I fucking have never been more scared in my life. It was terrifying. And I, I honestly can't say that I massively enjoyed it. I'm like, I've never been more privileged to be in a film. Like, I cannot still to this day believe that I was in a Coen Brothers film. They're my favorite filmmakers in the universe. But being in that concert was like genuinely painful. You're I like, just didn't. Do I, I have to do that to be in the film? I know. Well, I was the only, only person in the film who wasn't a real life singer. So all these people are like totally at home on stage. Like that's their thing. Like. And I was the only one who had never, ever stood up. And, you know, not since I was a kid at, like, the town hall drama class on a weekend had I stood up and sang a song in front of people. Would that qualify as, as your scariest moment? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 It was terrifying. Um, way, way scarier than anything I've done in acting. Do you and Marcus sing at home? No. You don't? <laughs> no. I think you should have a family band. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not allowed. No, I'm, um, by my kids, I mean. Um, no, I, I just, it's not a massive, I mean, I, you know, I can, I can hold a tune, but like it's never been I a thing I think you're a good me. singer. Oh, thanks. I don't think you could have done that New York, New York thing if you weren't a good singer. That's a hard song to sing. I think family band. That's, <laughs> your kids well, will you know, grow yeah, out of that phase where they don't want you to sing. And yeah, and, what, and then they'll get. You can, you can get in the bath together. and Yeah, and what, just have a. Good old sing song. Yeah. I don't know. There's something kind of excruciating about it. There is something funny about this idea that you can be such an amazing vessel of expressing vulnerability and and revealing humanity in a way that transfers to an audience and yet sort of in in your own life and the world that's not necessarily something that you you revel in. I mean I think life is thank God, you know relatively undramatic for that has been for me I've been so lucky and, and I and I certainly don't have any childhood trauma to draw on like you know but I, I can also recognize that the majority of roles I've done have been like quite seriously dramatic um, but it's also something that sort of reminds you I mean like there's you know doing suffragette I was just I was so happy doing that job um, being surrounded by these women but also like it was kind of a constant reminder and and I you know, I, I, this was really genuinely part of the shooting of it. it. Was like these women were unbelievable. Like that they did this and that this happened and that women starved themselves and and died and you know fought and in a time when it was completely outrageous to do. And like so, sometimes it is also a case of like the work just highlighting how profoundly blessed you are. And you know, God willing, we'll never have to. I'll never have to endure that kind of pain. And it gave me the most unbelievable, you know respect for women who endure the absolute worst and come through and and do extraordinary things with their lives so I think you know that's such a great sort of bonus of this job is like you get to step into other people's lives and experiences and then you know uh, appreciate things in a different way or appreciate people in a different way yeah what I hear you saying is that you have an opportunity to not only live these other lives but to to bring them to other people. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, the fact that the story of Emily Wilding Damison hadn't been told, like the suffragette story of these women going on hunger strike and a woman throwing herself underneath the king's horse at a national event. It was the first piece of news footage that went around the world, like in... It's the first viral. Yeah. Yeah. And we've never made a film about it because film, of, film has been made by men, about men. 
um, you know, but this 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 was like a basic civil rights, enormous civil rights movement, and no one's ever touched it because films have been driven by men for so long. Um, but we now know that's not the case, and that you know, films driven by women, women go to the cinema, they pay to see films, and they are. You know, it's been disproved a million times, but it's just taken us this long to figure it out. You know, I look at your body of work and I do see that you are choosing stories that that are, they do have that value. Mm. And I think that's one way to make it important, mm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes my agent, who's been my agent since I was 18. Judy Dench's agent. Judy Dench's yes. agent. She, uh, she said to me about a job once that we sort of ummed and over and then decided not to do and she said um, well darling you won't be telling your grandchildren about this one so it's probably not the right thing to do and that is a sort of funny way of it but um, I do think that I do want to be able to there has to be some quality to it where it is something that I will you know always feel connected to always feel proud of always feel you know I, I don't it feels more vocational than just doing things for the sake of doing them like there has to be something that I'll always remember about yeah. that or always feel um, pleased that I got involved in some way well I like you very much and I think you're earnest and I think you're thoughtful and your husband's lucky that you deemed him <laughs> worthy to be married to and I've enjoyed talking to you so much thank you so much for having me Hey folks, that's our show. And I have to say, I feel so lucky that I get to have conversations with these artists and dive deep into their process and find out that they have the same insecurities and same struggles that we all have. And talking to Carrie was incredible because she seems like somebody that had it all together out of the gate. And then we find out that she had a totally different story going on in her head. And I guess that is sort of the mystery of art. Definitely, if you haven't yet, go see Wildlife. She gives an amazingly real and disturbing performance. And then after that, just type Carrie Mulligan into whatever service you use to watch films and watch everything she's ever done, because she's incredible. And I was so happy to have her on. Now, as you know, we've had a lot of people on this show. And if you want to see all the episodes on any device as many times as you want, the best way to do it is to go to offcamera.com and get our television subscription. It's only $4.99 a month, and you can have access to our entire archive. So that's a great way to experience the visual side of off-camera. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast and you haven't yet subscribed yet, take a minute, subscribe to the show so you won't miss an episode, and then while you're there, give us a rating, leave us a review. Every time you do that, it helps more people find the show, which helps us to keep doing the show. So if you're loving what we're doing, take a minute and help us out with that. Also, if you're on social media, and let's face it, who's not these days, go to Off Camera Show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and share us with the world. Facebook is a great place to suggest guests to us, or just to tell your friends how much you love the show. Also, you can find me on social media. I'm Sam Jones on Twitter, and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. You can pick up on behind-the-scenes stuff for the show, see exclusive photographs, and stay in tune with what we're doing. So check all that out. And I want to thank everyone that helps us on this show because we couldn't do a show without the talented and hardworking people that make all this a reality. We have Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, Kara Johnson, and Matt Davidson, who we all know the whole thing would fall apart if he wasn't here 15 hours a day slaving away. So thanks to everybody that works on the show. See you next time off camera.